want to take your writing to the next level? If so, you'll be excited to hear that our sponsors this week are Curtis Brown Creative, the writing school that's affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 135 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including best-selling crime fiction authors Jane Harper, Kaz Freer, Anna Bailey and Laura Marshall. CBC offers a wide range of online writing courses led by acclaimed authors, including their brand new six-week course, Writing Crime Fiction, starting in October and open now for enrolment. The course features exclusive teaching videos and writing tasks from award-winning crime writer Vasim Khan, author of the Malabar House and Baby Ganesh Agency series, plus the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert crime fiction editors. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of writing crime fiction or any of their other six-week online writing courses. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more. Welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with the novelist Val McDermott. We spoke to Val about her years as a tabloid journalist, her decision to pursue novel writing full-time, and the art and the necessity of juggling multiple series at once. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. So Val, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's really excellent to, to have you on the show. Um, I wanted to ask about starting with your your love of storytelling as a child. Is it correct that you, you lived opposite a library from the age of six and that your, your mind was blown when you learned that you could tell lies and, and get paid for it? That's about the size of it, yeah. Um, my mum used to take me to the library even even before we, we moved to live opposite the central library. She she used to strap me into my pushchair and wheel me across the council estate to the, the branch library up there and, and read me picture books. Uh, I couldn't even say library at that age. I used to say I was going to the Labrador which was a word I knew because that was the dog we had. Um, and when, when we moved downtown, uh, I, I was given access to the whole panoply of, of Kirkcaldy Library's children's section, which had a tremendous range of fiction and non-fiction. And back in those days in Scotland, uh, this sort of Presbyterian notion that although you could take out four books at a time, two of them had to be non-fiction. So you had to improve yourself. Uh, so yeah, and and one of the series of books that I I read avidly was the Shelley School books, and in those one of the characters grows up to become a a writer of girls' school stories, in a way that we can now see as quite meta, but at the time was just taken for granted. Um, and in one book she gets a letter from her publisher, and it contains a check, and for me that was an epiphany. This is the notion that if someone who wrote books that ended up on the shelf in the library actually got paid money for it. And I thought, I could do that. I can tell stories. I can tell lies. I want to be a writer. So I guess I was about nine or ten, and, and that was my ambition set in stone from then on. That Shelley School series as well, I read that it instilled in you a sense of sequential storytelling. So one character would break her leg in one book and still be limping three books later. Um, how formative do you think reading those books was to, to the career that you would later pursue? I think I learned a lot from them. I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I recognised it at the time, but I think what drew me to those books was the fact that there was a sequence to it and consequences. Um, you read The Famous Five or The Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew and they all seem to take place in the same sempiternal summer or winter uh, and nobody learns anything from experience. There's never a sense of, we better not go into the dark cave because the last time we went into the dark cave something terrible happened. But with the Shelley School books, there was that sense of, of time moving forward and people growing up and moving into their adult lives. Uh, and the other thing about it, of course, was because it was the library, you had to take what you could get. So you, I never read them in sequence. It was always like this massive 3D jigsaw puzzle in my head. But there'd be those marvellous moments of, of recognition. Suddenly going, oh, so that's why she's the way she is. 
Uh, and so there was a, I think I learned an awful lot about character development and about how you, how you hold things back and how you reveal. Uh, although, as I say, at the time, I wouldn't necessarily have, have recognised those things. It taught me a lot about structure. And is it right that you were on a, a sort of fast track scheme for gifted children and this was the same one that Gordon Brown was on? Is that correct? Yeah, the Fife Education Department in the 1960s thought it would be a really good idea uh, to take uh, the brightest kids from each primary school class and take them to high school a year early. Um, and it was kind of strange. I mean, we it, it might have been easier on us if we'd just been mixed through the rest of the year, but they put us in a separate class. Uh, you know, so the school, the class designations were like 1F1 for the first French stream or 1G1 for the first German stream. And we were 1E, which uh, the school club was 1, one it, it stood for early, but everybody called us the experiment. So by the time we, we got mixed into the general school population, everybody knew who the experiments were. Uh, and teachers were, uh, teachers were always saying, you should be doing better than that, you were an E-pupil. So there was a lot of pressure put on, on us. And I think in, in your early teens particularly, a year makes an awful difference in terms of your development sort of emotionally and psychologically. So I, while I kind of applaud the, the intention, I think the execution was pretty grim for those of us at the heart of it. And you went off to Oxford for University. What was that experience like? You've mentioned the fact that lots of people couldn't understand your Scottish accent, for example, but I also read that you had a tutor that sort of introduced you to a lot of uh, crime authors and, and novels that you still admire today. Yeah, I, I, I did find it a complete culture shock. There was uh, all sorts of differences. To, people didn't understand my accent, you're right, uh, and I didn't understand the food that was put in front of me a lot of the time. You know, Growing up in Fife in the 1960s, we only had three vegetables. You know, So there were things that appeared on the table, and I thought, is that a table decoration or is that dinner? Um, and gradually I, 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 I learned to, uh, to fit into, acclimatise, to be part of, of the world that I'd fallen into. And I guess my attitude was really that I was just going to seize it by the scruff of the neck and, and, and take everything that was on offer. Um, you know, I had this sort of feeling that uh, this was going to open doors for me uh, and I was determined to rush through those doors headlong, regardless of what was on the other side of them. And I did notice very early on that uh, although we didn't study the crime novel, every time you went for a tutorial, you'd always see the green and white spines of classic penguin crime novels. So it was clear that, uh, that my tutors were reading these kind of things. And I had a friend who was a, a philosophy don. She wasn't actually my tutor, but she introduced me to, to writers like Edmund Crispin, uh, who I still read today. In fact, I'm giving a paper on him at St Hilda's Crime and Mystery Weekend this year. Uh, and the other great source for me in Oxford was a, a bookshop at the bottom of the Cowley Road, Jeremy's 10p Bookshop. Uh, and you could go there and buy paperbacks for 10p and once you'd finished with them you could sell them back for 5p so it was a great uh, a great source for me of of reading right across the piece uh, from from classic uh, golden age crime fiction through the americans through to contemporary british crime fiction so it really it, it was my it, be, it became a huge reference library almost for me uh, i loved reading crime fiction alongside everything else that I was write, reading. Um, and it's always been the case, uh, ever since I, I fell for Agatha Christie at the age of about nine, uh, it's been my, my genre of guilty pleasure, I suppose. And is it right that you, you read Sexual Politics by um, Kate Millay at, at Oxford as well, and that that had a, a sort of big impact on you as well? Yeah, um, a friend of mine gave me a copy of uh, Kate Millay's Sexual Politics in my second year, and I, I read it in a weekend and it just blew the top of my head off. Um, you know, I was, I was reading very conventional criticism and uh, the, the Oxford course was very mainstream. Uh, the nearest they got to edgy was a bit of Marxist criticism now and again. Uh, but this, this just completely uh, exploded my idea of, of how to read and how to think. It was the first time I'd really come into direct contact with a feminist text. Uh, and it just transformed the way I looked at, at the world, but also the way I looked at literature. And uh, it's quite funny, really, because I got so excited about this. And I went into my tutorial, and, and my, my tutor then was a, a wonderful woman called Anne Elliot, and she was very proper uh, and always so be beautifully turned out. And so she was always beautifully dressed and had her silver hair coiffed in a sort of French plait. And she just 
exuded the sort of absolutely classic English woman. And she was a great Church of England person. And, and uh, her specialist subjects were Sydney and Philip Sidney and, 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 and Spencer. And I went in here absolutely full of it. And I've just read this extraordinary book. And I just, I just ranted at her for 10 minutes about how amazing this experience was. And she just sat there nodding calmly. At the end of it, she said, Ah, oh, yes, dear Kate. And what? Dear Kate? <laughs> she said, Ah, oh, yes, I was Kate's supervisor for the DPhil thesis that became sexual politics. And that just about took the rest of my head off that was remaining because I thought this, this, this woman who's the epitome of classic English gentlewoman being confronted with Kate Millett uh, writing about anal sex in Norman Mailer. And I just couldn't put these two things together. But, you know, it, it, was, it was an amazing experience for me. It just changed the whole way I looked at the world. Um, and, you know, as I've, as I've said before, it, that led me to the feminists and the feminists led me to the lesbians and, and happy ever after. <laughs> um, after university, you um, chose to become a journalist. Uh, why did you choose that route rather than publishing or some other route into, into writing? Well, I didn't really know anything about the publishing world and I certainly didn't know anybody that worked in that world. Um, the, I think... I, I chose journalism in a way, not really because of writing, but because I couldn't think of anything else that I could do. I've, I've never been very good with, with uh, hierarchies and, and authority. Um, so a lot of the conventional uh, opportunities just seemed to me to be a horrible prospect. Um, and I've never been very good with... Uh, I've got a low attention span, I've got a very low boredom threshold, and the thought of doing the same kind of thing day after day just made me want to run away and hide. And the only thing, wandering around the careers fair, that seemed remotely to, to suit my, my personality and the way I wanted to live my life was, was journalism. So I applied for the, the sort of available journalism training schemes and got accepted by the Mirror Group scheme and trotted off to, to Devon to be a trainee journalist on local papers. And is it right that when you arrived at the record in Glasgow, women had only recently been allowed to wear trousers in the office? Yep, apparently it had only been six months earlier that women had been allowed to wear trousers at work. Um, and about the same time period that they'd been allowed to go on the night shift as well, because you couldn't have a woman wandering about Glasgow at night, you know. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I was, I was going to say, and in terms of you know what, what you drew from from that time that you were a reporter, both in terms of your kind of understanding of crime, I suppose that you you brought into your novels, and also how that that kind of honed you as a writer. How did those experiences work? I don't think I had much to do with crime in the early days of my my journalistic career because I was very much the down table reporter um, that you know got all the the jobs that nobody else wanted to do. Um, and I, it was only later on in my career really that I had much to do with reporting about crime, and uh, I did a lot of general reporting. I did, uh, in those days, back on the record, I did all the women's stories, you know, miracle babies and uh, uh, fabulous uh, love stories of people who were reunited after being teenage sweethearts or whatever, um, and uh, the weather. I got, the, I got to do the weather a lot, uh, but what it, what it taught me in terms of writing skills was uh, how, to, how to write with concision. Uh, you know, when you work for a tab tabloid newspaper, in essence, no story is going to be more than 10 paragraphs. So you have to find a way to distill things down so you can get complicated things in terms that are, are understandable to the reader. But the big thing that I took away from my years in journalism was the people, the people I interviewed. As a journalist, you, you come into people's lives generally when something bad has happened. Occasionally it's when something really good has happened, but, but more often it's when, when something terrible has happened in their lives. And so you see people in crisis, uh, and nothing brings out people's character more than being in crisis. And I saw all kinds of people, uh, from the highest in the land to the lowest in the land, uh, in, in places of work, in their places of home, in their places of leisure, and it gave me this massive database of characters to draw on that I still uh, summon up regularly from the back of my head, uh, thinking of how people reacted and what their faces looked like and how their body language was, how they behaved. So that really was, for me, the principal thing I took away from journalism. That and the idea that uh, writing is not something precious that you have to wait for the muse to strike. You know, you can't say to the news desk, oh, I'm not feeling like it, I'll cover that rain crash, to rail crash tomorrow. 
you know, you have to do the story when the news happens. Uh, and that, uh, I suppose, taught me that uh, no matter what's going on in your life, you can always get a thousand words down. And if you get a thousand words down, you can make them better. Uh, I always start the working day with looking at what I've done the day before, going through that and editing that. Uh, and that, I suppose, is, is a hangover from those days that get, get something down and then make it better. How did you earn the nickname Killer during your journalism days? Um, I think because I, I, I recognised when I, I went to the Daily Record in Glasgow that uh, everyone was waiting for me to fail. Uh, and uh, because, yeah, I was a graduate, I'd been to Oxford, I wasn't, I wasn't like them, I wasn't a man. Um, I just didn't fit in. And there was a sense that, as I say, everybody was waiting for me to fail. The very first day uh, I arrived at the record, I was sent out on uh, a, a what called a death knock to get collect pictures of um, four teenage boys who had died in a car crash the night before in the Lake District. Uh, they came from Ayrshire and I had to go down to Ayrshire and talk to their grieving families and get pictures of them and get some information about them so that I could write uh, a story. And I knew that if I did not get back to go back to the office with those four pictures and those four sets of interviews, then that was it, I was dead in the water. Um, and so I, I went out and I did it. And uh, I guess that was my attitude from, from then on, was I'm going, I'm, I'm going to do it. And so that's why I got called Killer, because you send her out in a story, she'll kill it dead. And how did your fiction writing kind of begin in parallel to this? Is it right that you, you wrote your first manuscript when you were 20 and it was sort of wildly over the top and it got rejected by everywhere? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 when I left Oxford, that was it. I thought, this is it right now. My, my life as a writer begins. Um, and uh, I used to write in my spare time in, 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 the, in the evenings. And uh, I, had this, I shared this flat with a bunch of other trainee journalists. And it was always freezing in the winter. And so I would sit there in my, in my, in my bedroom with my portable typewriter and my duffel coat and my fingerless mittens, uh, attempting to be a writer, you know, sort of freezing writer starving in a garret. Uh, and I thought this was how it would be, you know, and I, and I started uh, writing this, this novel that was all about tortured human relationships and uh, uh, grief and love and all, all the big things. And it was truly terrible. Uh, but the one thing I will say is that I actually finished it uh, and sent it off to every publisher I could find in the Writers and Artists Yearbook. And, you know, people say often they send off their, their manuscript and months go by before they hear anything. That, that wasn't like it with mine. I used to get it back by return of post, practically. It was terrible. It was a really, really awful book. Um, but the one good thing that, that came from it was uh, I, I showed it to a friend of mine who was an actor. And uh, she said, um, I don't know about much about books, but I think this would make a really good play. And, well, I didn't know much about plays, but I thought, well, cross out the descriptions, leave in the dialogue, that's basically your play. And that's what I did, and I, I wrote some extra scenes to cover what I'd crossed out. And, and I went down to the local theatre, uh, Plymouth Theatre Company, where I kind of knew one of the directors there because his, his ex-girlfriend was the sister of my best friend at Oxford. <laughs> so there was a kind of connection there which probably made him uh, look at it a bit more closely than he would have if I'd just been some, some punter walking in off the street. Um, but he read it, and uh, to my astonishment, really, he said, uh, we're doing a series of new plays by new writers in the studio theatre, and we'd love to do this. So... That was that. At 23, and completely unexpectedly, I was a professionally performed playwright. I adapted it for BBC Radio, um, and I, had, I got an agent off the back of that. And uh, from that point on, I was considered that I was going to be the next Harold Pinter, or possibly the next Tom Stoppard. But uh, the thing that I didn't get at that point, really, was that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I'd had a fluke. Uh, and I didn't really understand how to write a play, how to structure a play, how to how to make something work dramatically. Uh, and I kept trying to write these plays, and they were pretty terrible, and nobody wanted to perform them. And my agent was uh, was not the most um, constructive of agents in the sense that uh, he didn't work on trying to help me become a better writer. He was more interested in clients who were making more money in the West End and things like that. And so I, I didn't have any sort of guidance as to where I could, could learn the nuts and bolts of the craft. And so I just kept writing these terrible plays and having them rejected until eventually uh, my agent fired me. 
which was a pretty low point, really. Um, but I was still determined that I, I, I wanted to write. I, I, I just had this passionate desire to tell stories and, and I thought I had something to say and probably a way to say it, but I couldn't figure out what that way was. And I, having realised that, that I kept failing at the plays because I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing, I turned to, I turned to the notion that maybe I should try to write the kind of book I loved to read. I mean, it's a kind of duh thing, really. But, you know, I was, I, you know, come out of a, a literature degree at Oxford. I thought I ought to be writing the great English novel. Uh, and at that time, it's hard to cast your mind back to the early 1980s. But crime writing was regarded as pretty low down the totem pole. Uh, it was it was pulp. It was rubbish. It was airport novels. Real writers didn't write books like that. Um, but I thought, well, this is this is a genre that I do understand. I, I know what the basic structure of a crime novel is, uh, and maybe maybe I could do that. And uh, but the problem I had at that point really was in the early nineteen eighties. British crime fiction consisted mostly of police procedurals and village mysteries, and I didn't really understand either of those. It viscerally, not from the inside. I didn't know enough about the details of police work to feel comfortable writing that. And I remember saying that a few years later to Colin Dexter, and, and he just burst out laughing, and he said, you just make it up, my dear. I had never been inside a police station until after I'd written five Inspector Morse novels. See, I thought you couldn't just make it up when it was about the police. You know, I thought they'd get offended and come round your house and knock on your door and give you a bad time. Um, but So I, I, I turned my back on the police procedural, and of course Village Mysteries was, I mean, it was like science fiction to me. You know, I grew up in Fife, and I knew about mining communities, but not about places like St Mary Mead. So I, I was kind of like, I, I could write a crime novel, understand the shape and everything, but, but I don't have a world for it. And then um, one of my friends from Oxford, who'd gone off to live in America, sent me a copy of Sarah Paretsky's first novel, Indemnity Only. And for the first time, I was reading a novel that, that felt like a contemporary woman's life, a life that I recognised in a way. Uh, you know, she had a brain and a sense of humour, and she did things for herself. She didn't need to, to get the guys in whenever the going got tough. And the other thing that really struck me about Indemnity Only was, was the world. It's set in Chicago, and the story that unfolds in that book happens because it's Chicago. It's not just some random murder bolted onto some random location. It's it's the roots of the story, the roots of the events of the story are the kind of lives people live in that city, the kind of jobs they do, the kind of culture they're living within, the society, the politics of that city. And I and that suddenly made sense to me of, of how maybe I could write a crime novel that had that same sort of sense of this could only happen here almost. Um, and that, that, that dealt with the contemporary world that I lived in. And so I started writing Report for Murder. And you were writing that in your... I read that you worked on Sundays, so you were working on Mondays on your on your books whilst still doing your journalism. Um, and it was intended as a trilogy from the start. How did you go about putting together the kind of structure for that and working out you know, how that story would develop over three books? Which became five. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually six, I think, of six Lindsay Gordons. Um, but I, but um, the book I really wanted to write was the third book because I, I thought that was the, the one that had the sort of, you know, for me, the great drama and excitement and climactic sense. But I couldn't figure out how to get the backstory into that book that I needed to have to get to the end point that I wanted to get to. So I thought, well, I have to write, I have to write other books first. I have to set the, set the scene and establish relationships, establish who the characters are and how they function in the world. Uh, and so I, I thought, what are the things that I need to have happen before I get to that book that I really, really, really want to write? And so I, I, I did it that way. I kind of started from the end and worked back to the beginning and figured out what, what, what needed to, ha the kind of thing that needed to happen to make them the kind of characters that would do the things that happened in the third book. Uh, and so that was how I did it, really. Um, and uh, having worked backwards, I then started working forwards. Um, I didn't understand enough about 
planning really when I started writing report for murder and, and I wasted quite a lot of time going down blind alleys and having to backtrack and I did I, I wrote I wrote my first four books actually on Monday afternoons because I had a, a busy job in newspapers and worked on a Sunday newspaper so on Monday um, I wasn't at work but and, and all my friends were at work so there was no distractions um, and, and that was just what I did I sat down on Monday afternoons and it, it turned into a very productive way of working because for the rest of the week I'd be planning what I was going to do the next Monday uh, and, and thinking about and, and rehearsing scenes in my head and, 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 and dialogue in my head and also thinking back to what I'd done the week before uh, so that I would, would go back and make changes that would allow me to, to move forward in the direction I wanted to go in. Um, and uh, really... I wasted a lot of time doing things in in, in very uh, inefficient ways, uh, but I learned a lot in the process about how to put a story together. And by the time I got to the third one, the one I really wanted to write, I'd understood about the importance of really planning carefully where I was going so as not to waste too much time. So this this question of whether one plans or just kind of plunges in is something that comes up over and over again on the podcast when we've when we've had novelists on and we've had you know really distinguished people with completely different approaches from those who have a complete plot worked out before they go in uh, be it in post-it notes or whatever the medium is to those who just literally turn up and, and kind of follow their subconscious it sounds it sounds like you're more towards the kind of planning side of that is that right well, I was initially. Um, my process has changed quite dramatically over the years. Um, by the time I got to that third book, I did understand that what worked best for me was to plan carefully. Uh, that, that gave me the sort of security blanket, if you like. It was like having a roadmap um, to follow. And also because it, it had that structure laid out for me, as I was writing, things would occur to me, a different way of doing something, a more economical way of telling the story, or a more exciting episode, if you like. And I could go off on those diversions because I knew where I had to come back to on the spine of the story. So it, it didn't feel scary just to sort of drive off into the, the unknown. Um, and so that, that became my method for quite a long time. Uh, I would sit down at the start of it and, and I'd have a pile of file cards. And um, actually, when I was doing the Kate Brannigan novels, which have got lots of multi-stranded plotting going on, uh, I'd actually have different coloured file cards for each for each storyline the been the main plot the subplot the secondary subplot what's going on in her life uh, and all these different file cards and it was almost like counting I'll take one from the pink pile and two from the blue pile Carol you know um and I put the story together like that uh and that's 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 what worked for me for a long time and then uh, there was one book I think it was the torment of others and I started I sat down and started planning it out and I got about halfway through and I just got stuck it was it was like trying to wrestle with water or you know you know when you're in chemistry class and and you get a blob of mercury put down on the bench and you try to capture the blob of mercury but every time you get close to it it sort of splits off and goes three different ways and that's kind of what it felt like i i, I just couldn't do it uh and I, and i really started to panic i i thought is this it then is this is this the end of the road is this where i run out of of inspiration you know because it's not unreasonable to imagine you only have a certain number of books in you and after that you just dry up. And I kind of felt like I was standing on, on this, this cliff edge of, is this the end of my career? You know, am I going to have to go back and get a job? God help me. Because um, by that time I considered myself completely unemployable. Um, so I, I got, it was the deadline kept getting closer and every now and again my editor would ring up and we'd have these ridiculous conversations and I'd go, yes, I'm writing, it's fine, everything's fine. Uh, and I wasn't, it wasn't fine. Everything was the opposite of fine. And eventually I, I thought the only thing I can do now is run away. Uh, and I, it's a place I, I, I've been to a few times in Italy. It's a bit isolated and there was no sort of contact with the outside world, you know, no radio, no telephone, no, no, no internet. And I thought I'm just going to run away and see what happens and, and try and force myself to write this book. And I literally sat down every morning at nine o'clock and I wrote until half past seven in the evening. And then I went and had a shower, uh, a bottle of wine and one of Mama Rosa's home-cooked dinners. And I just got up in the morning and did it all over again. And I don't really know quite how I did it, but I just forced myself to sit there and write. And I wrote 65,000 words in nine days, which is mental. Uh, I, by the end of it, I, I, I just I couldn't speak. 
It's just like the last. I thought on the last day, you know, and this sort of had this lovely notion that I would go into Siena and and wander among the crowds and drink coffee and and eat ice cream. On the last day, all I could do was sit by the pool like a stranded guppy, uh, my mouth open, gazing at the pool and just think I can't speak, I can't think, I can't read. Um, and I sent this book off to my editor uh, with no real sense of whether it was any good or not, and. Uh, she she got back to me a couple of weeks later and said, this is the best first draft you've ever handed in. And I thought, oh shit, is this what it's going to be like from now on? I'm going to have to go and lock myself in a cupboard. Um, but what it did was was um, kind of loosened up the way I approached writing uh, and made me feel much more, I suppose, confident about my ability to, to tell a story, to that I had developed the kind of narrative skills that would carry me through. So now uh, I tend to start off with, with a broad sort of arc of the story in my head. You know, this is roughly where I'm heading. Uh, and then I kind of know what the next four or five sections are. And I'll always know before I start two or three of the sort of cruxes, the turning points of the story. But that's it now. I just start with, with that and, and work my way through. Um, I, I've heard E.L. Doctorow talk about, about this, calling it driving at night writing. So you're driving in the dark and you know what your destination is, uh, but all you can see is the bit of road in front of your headlights and you just kind of have to fare forward and, and, and trust. Um, but it took me quite a long time to, to, to learn to trust myself as a, as, as a storyteller. A message from our sponsor, Vitsu, Melvin's story. We love, love, love our Vitsu shelving. Build quality and ease of assembly is amazing, but it was your service that made the whole process such a joy. So said Melvin from Sydney in this heartfelt message to his Vitsu planner Sophie in London. Love is a word heard a lot at Vitsu. Other verbs just don't seem to cut it. As with any customer, Sophie considered every detail, so Melvin's bookshelves were perfect for his needs. Passionate about good service, she communicates with all her customers directly, wherever they are in the world. Whether in person or on the other side of the globe, Vitsu's planners hold your hand throughout the process, time and again proving that long-distance relationships really do work. Every interaction is handled with love from Vitsu. Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular adaptable kit of parts. It can provide the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, that's V-I-T-S-O-E dot com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long-living furniture by Dieter Rams. Could we talk a little bit about your experience of the market um, in in your sort of early days? Um, I read that you when you were sending Report for Murder out to publishers, you were confident that sending a lesbian crime novel to mainstream publishers was was not going to be a good approach. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, this was... Uh, I was sending a report for murder out around about, I suppose, 84, 85, um, and there were absolutely no lesbian crime novels being published by mainstream publishers at all. There were very few being published anywhere. I mean, and... There were a few feminist publishing houses like the Women's Press and Sheba and, and Virago and they were publishing some American writers and, and some of this new wave uh, American private eye women's fiction and some of those were lesbians so you had writers like Mary Wings and Barbara Wilson, Catherine Lee Forrest but there wasn't anybody doing that in, in the UK uh, and so I thought that uh, there was probably not going to be much of a market for this. But it never occurred to me not to make Lindsay Gordon a lesbian because that was kind of the way she emerged in my head. Uh, and I, I also had quite a strong sense of, of wanting to write books that meant the next generation of women coming up would not be faced with a desert when it came to finding a template for their lives, to seeing some representation of who they thought they might be inside. Um, and I thought, well, the, these feminist publishing houses in the UK might be interested in something like this. And so that was kind of my first port of call. Uh, I, I sent it to the Women's Press and uh, they accepted it. 
I think I was lucky. Uh, you know, there's always a bit of luck, I think, in, in a literary career. If I'd published that, if I'd sent, if I'd sent that book off five years earlier, it wouldn't have been published. There would have been perceived as no market for it. And if I'd sent it out five years later, it would have been, no, we've got plenty of these, thank you very much. I just hit the right moment. These American writers were starting to make an impact in the UK and publishers over here wanted something similar but with a, a UK background. So I dropped lucky uh, in that sense. And that was that, really. Um, I got a pitiful advance <laughs> for that first novel. And uh, I had quite a tough time in in getting it to, to press because... For for reasons that were nothing to do with me, I ended up having five different editors on the book. And every one of them had their own idea of what they wanted the book to be. And when I look at that book now, um, I mean, a lot of people still read it and love it. And it's never been out of print. But all I see are the joins. All I see are the bits that where, where the jigsaw puzzle pieces don't quite fit together uh, as, as I wanted them to. But uh, it was published and... Uh, it had uh, absolutely no marketing spend. Didn't get a single review when it came out. It was entirely a word of mouth thing. Booksellers passed it on to their customers. Uh, people talked about it to their friends and gradually it built up a readership. So over time, uh, Lindsay has a, has a life of, uh, has a continuing life. And I'm still amazed by you know, the number of, of young women who come up to me and say, these were the first lesbian novels that I read and I really felt that I had a home. And I think they've kind of lasted because they're not, although the, although the protagonist is a lesbian, they're not lesbian novels as such. They're not about being gay. They're not coming out stories. They're not, uh, they're not relationship stories, although relationships do run through the books. But they are, they're crime novels that happen to have a, a lesbian protagonist and that's kind of what I wanted to write. I wanted to write um, gay characters, gay and lesbian characters that just fitted in with the landscape of the world, that were part of, of the world in, and not in a sort of extraordinary uh, way that was all about their sexuality. Their sexuality was important, but it wasn't the only thing about them. Um, and we're now um, got Lindsay Gordon's in, in development for television, finally, after all these years. So... Hopefully we'll be seeing Lindsay Gordon on the screen. It's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it interfaces with people's writing lives. So be as candid or as guarded as you want. But with yourself, as you were moving from being a journalist to, to going to write full time, how did that work? And particularly, what was the role that, that Jane Gregory, your agent, played in, in kind of making it all financially viable for you? Well, I got £800 advance for my first novel. Uh, I didn't have an agent at that point. Uh, but when the book came out, uh, Jane and her then business partner, Lizanne Radici, wrote me a letter saying they just started this agency, Gregory and Radici, and they were going to focus on crime fiction. And they were writing to everyone who had published a debut novel that they thought had potential to see if they wanted to be re represented. And basically, if you already have an agent, tear up this letter. But if not, come and talk to us. Uh, and so I, next time I was in London, I arranged to, to meet them. Uh, they were still working out of Jane's flat. Uh, and uh, I, I, I had this lovely meeting with, with Jane and Lizanne. And Lizanne said, well, there's at least one good sentence in this book. Uh, and I think that what swung it was that the dogs liked me. Uh, Jane and Lizanne both had, had lovely dogs. And uh, Licorice lay on my feet and Mutton put his head on my thigh. And there was a sense that the dogs approve, then we'll take you on. Um, and right from the, from the, the get-go there, uh, they made a huge difference. Uh, Jane got double the advance for my next novel uh, with the Women's Press. And we started talking about uh, developing my career to a point where I could write full-time, which was what I wanted. Um, after I'd written the third Lindsay Gordon novel, I always knew that I was going to do something different because uh, Lindsay had, as I said, planned this to be a trilogy. And so I knew I was going to move on to something else. And I wanted to write something quite different. Uh, Lindsay was a sort of lesbian Scottish journalist, so I was able to draw on a lot of my own life experience to create the character. But I wanted to, to prove to myself and to other people that I could write something very different from my own world, my own experience. And so I created Kate Brannigan, who is a straight private eye based in Manchester, where I was living at the time um, and working. 
and uh, I, 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 I wanted to challenge myself as a writer to see if I could write uh, something that was very different for me, if I could write in the first person instead of the third person. I was interested to see if I could make the, the private eye novel work in a UK setting where, you know, we don't have guns and we don't have uh, all, all the kind of uh, legal licence requirements of being a private eye that you have in America, for example. Um, and also, I'll be quite blunt about it, I wanted to be in a position where I could make a living out of writing full-time, and I knew the only way to do that was to find a mainstream publisher. And I thought if I made Kate Brannigan straight, then probably there was a better chance of, of finding uh, a mainstream publishing house. So I sat down and I I wrote the first Kate Brannigan novel while I was still working full-time. By that time, I was Northern Bureau Chief of a National Sunday newspaper, which was quite high-pressured, but uh, I still had my Monday afternoons, mostly, to get writing on. Um, Jane and I and, and Lizanne, we talked about where we would take this this novel and we narrowed it down to a couple of, of editors and uh, the first one of those that we sent it to uh, turned it down not because she didn't like it but because she'd just taken somebody else on, uh, another woman writer that she really wanted to, to go big on and she didn't think she could do justice to both of us. So we, uh, and I went to see uh, Julia Wisdom, who at the time was at Gallant's, she was doing their crime list and Julia was very keen on, on Kate Brannigan and she made me an offer for the first two. Uh, I think it was three and a half grand each for the first two. And I was so excited by this. Uh, I mean, at the time I was, I was earning a big salary. I had a company car, I had an expense account, I had a newspaper allowance. I was really, I was living in the sort of the mink-lined cage. So the idea of uh, writing full time was, was quite a big leap. Uh, but I remember going back on the train after that first meeting with, with Julia where we, we thrashed out what, what she wanted from me um, and doing my sums on the back of an envelope, literally on the back of an envelope, I worked out that if I was writing full time I could probably write two books a year and if I, if I could sell two books a year at that level I could pay my mortgage and feed myself uh, and that seemed to me to be something worth taking a chance on. Uh, I was 35 at the time. Uh, I went back home and I, I got in touch with my editor and said I wanted to take voluntary redundancy. And there was a certain amount of toing and froing about that. Uh, and uh, eventually uh, the, the company agreed. Uh, and I went out the door in April 1991 with basically with a year's money, which was what kept me afloat for the next couple of years because I was... I was actually going through a load of paperwork recently because I was sorting out stuff that needed to be shredded and stuff that needed to be kept. Uh, and, and I found uh, I found my tax returns from those first couple of years writing full-time. And writing full-time was a serious loss if you actually looked at it as, a, as an income provider. Um, but I was determined uh, and... I give myself this kind of Stalinist five-year plan, uh, five years, ten books, and if I couldn't make it, I'd go back to being a journalist. Uh, I almost did that. I almost did. I got nine books in in the five years. But um, the thing that made the difference was uh, Jane has always been really strong on foreign rights. Her background before she became an agent was in rights, and she went to. I mean, she told me years later. She said, "I couldn't believe you were doing this, giving up this, giving up your day job." And we sat down and said, "We have, we have to make this work for her." She said, "I used to wake up in the middle of the night, sweating, thinking, how am I going to do this?'" And uh, so, because that's that's what Jane's like. I mean, she is a tiger. She 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 fights for her authors uh, every inch of the way. And what swung it for me, what made my life uh, much easier, was that she did uh, a deal with a German publisher. Um, Fisher Verlag for the Kate Brannigan novels, which actually paid me more than I was getting in the UK for them. Uh, and she also sold them in, in America. Uh, and that made it possible really for me to, to live relatively well. It took me until, uh, I think it was The Wire in the Blood in 1997 uh, to start having the same level of earnings that I'd had when I gave up my day job six years earlier. But I, I wasn't, I've, not, I've never done it for the money. You know, I was quite happy, really, um, when I reached the point where I could, could, have, I could afford to go and buy CDs and books again um, after we dealt the deal with the Germans. And that, that, um, 
that for me was was I'm quite happy with all of that because uh, it's never been about the money. The money is lovely. It's it's lovely to be well paid for what you do. But in the early days, uh, I just cared about being able to write for a living without having to to worry about uh, what anybody else was thinking about on a day-to-day basis. I wasn't having to go into an office and deal with people. I wasn't having to, to go out and deal with people being obnoxious and, and, and unpredictable and, and difficult. Um, I just liked being able to sit and write every day. I read as well that part of the motivation, as well as the, you know having the freedom to write your books... Uh, part of the decision to leave journalism was that you'd found some of the reporting quite traumatic. You'd written about Hillsborough and the Lockerbie bombing, and and I read as well that you'd been assaulted whilst um, interviewing someone for a piece. Um, was that what gave you kind of the push to to do this full time? I think by the by the time sort of of Lockerbie and Hillsborough, I was already you know like planning my my exit, my departure, um, and digging the escape tunnel, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, I think. What really first set me down the road of thinking I have to stop doing this, this is really not good for me, was the, the descent of the tabloids into the gutter in, in the mid to late 1980s. Yeah, I'd, I'd gone into tabloid journalism with that kind of idealistic view, I suppose, that, uh, that working people deserved newspapers that were informative as well as entertaining. Uh, and gradually in the 1980s, led by uh, post-whopping Rupert Murdoch, but eagerly followed by Robert Maxwell and, and the Daily Star and things like that, I just it, it, it was quite clear to me that uh, the world I had wanted to inhabit was not going to exist really for much longer at all. I didn't want to be writing these stories. I didn't want to be sitting outside soap stars' houses at six o'clock in the morning waiting to see who emerged. It, it just felt shabby and, and, and dishonest and, and I didn't want to be doing that. Um, and so I started, you know, as I say, planning my escape route. But it became a matter of, of I think, more urgency when when I did, when I covered things like Lockerbie and, and, and Hillsborough. Because the, I, these are the kind of stories that, uh, that affect the way you, 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 you are inside. And you either build a wall between you and, and, and the events and the people you're having to interview. And, and that affects you in one particular way. Or you allow yourself to empathise, to feel their, their grief, to share their grief. And that affects you in a different kind of way. And both of those inflict a kind of damage. Uh, and I, I looked around me at the people I worked with and, and I thought, I don't want to be you when I'm 50. Um, and that was, that was, I mean, you know, I, I totally admire the kind of people who can do these kind of horrible, awful assignments and retain some of their humanity. Um, I've got nothing but admiration for, for the likes of Lindsay Hilsom and Marie Colvin, but I knew I couldn't do it. It, it just wasn't, it wasn't something I could do and be comfortable with. Uh, and so it became, uh, I guess, a matter of more urgency, really, to, to find a way out the door. And uh, as I say, I was quite happy to, to settle for a, a much diminished uh, lifestyle in a way because it let me do what I thought I could do better at. There's no point in doing something and, 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 and destroying yourself in the process if, if you don't think you're making a difference, if it's not something that you really want to be doing. Uh, so I'd much rather be um, less successful maybe as a writer, but doing the thing that I thought mattered to me and, and might just matter to other people as well. Was there a particular moment when you realised that, that the novels were going to have or were achieving this kind of stratospheric level of success? I remember we had Ian Rankin on the show and he, he told us this extraordinary story about being in, in like a motel in the wilds of America on a book tour and getting a royalty statement. And it had, he thought, like too many O's on the end. And he thought this is a typo and he called up his publisher and they were like, no, 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 you have sold all these books. I mean, was there was there a moment when you realised like that they, these were going to be huge? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I ever had quite that kind of moment, but I think a, a turning point for me was um, when the Mermaid Singing won the gold dagger, um, because I really did not imagine that was going to happen. Uh, it was 1995, and at that time, the, 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 the Crime Writers Association gold daggers went to people like Reginald Hill and Colin Dexter and Ruth Rendell. I mean, writers who were um, much more experienced than I was, who were writing, writing books that had a certain um, style and, uh, 
uh, a certain um, place in the market, if you like. They were they were within the conventions of the genre in a way that the mermaid singing wasn't at that point. I mean, it's hard to, to look back now and, and think what things were like then, but you know, nobody was writing serial killer novels in the UK. Nobody was writing about psychological profiling. Um, it just wasn't wasn't out there. And what I thought, I was astonished that the book got on the shortlist for a start. And then I, I thought, that's, that's enough, that's fine. And when it won the gold dagger, I was completely astounded because you know, I just, in my heart, I thought books like this don't win the gold dagger. Uh, it's dark, it's violent, it's difficult, it's, it's, it's not what, it's not, it's not, it didn't feel like a mainstream novel at the time. Uh, and it changed, it changed things for me. Uh, Jane sold me into markets that I'd never been sold into before because uh, it's often easier to sell foreign rights when something's won a big prize. Uh, and, it just I just was taken much more seriously uh, by booksellers, by reviewers, uh, and that made a huge difference. And then uh, with the next book after that in the series, The Wire and the Blood, uh, it was ultimately acquired by Coastal Productions and they made the television series, which was hugely successful uh, here and abroad. And that really made a difference to my, to my sales. So it was there wasn't a sort of sudden moment where everything changed, except that The Gold Dagger changed an awful lot for me. Um, and then in terms of um, the financial success, the numbers of books sold, that was more of a steady rise. Um, but Ian Rankin and I used to joke that it had taken us 10 years to become an overnight sensation. And there's a certain amount of truth in that. You know, it, it just was a steady build. And then suddenly there's a moment where you think, oh, yeah, that's me. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it was gradual. Um, and I still don't quite entirely believe it, you know, but there you go. <laughs> We're sadly coming up against our time limit, but one last question from me. You mentioned when you were starting out that crime fiction was not sort of denigrated, but it wasn't taken particularly seriously. How has that changed over the course of your career? It's changed enormously. Uh, I think there's a lot of really good writing going on in, in the crime genre at the moment. And I think that uh, people take it a lot more seriously. It's not just regarded as, as a throwaway, something that you take on your holidays and leave in the place where you stay. Um, and I think that one of the reasons for this, I think, is, is what happened with literary fiction in, in the sort of 80s and 90s, that, that obsession with theory, literary theory, literary criticism, and, and um, a, a, a failure to engage with narrative structure, which actually means a failure to engage with readers. Uh, and I think... Human beings are hardwired for narrative. We like things that have a beginning and a middle and an end, though not necessarily in that order. And for a lot of writers of my generation, where maybe we would have focused more on, on, on literary fiction, as that's what I tried to do to begin with, uh, the idea that in the crime novel you can deal with all the things you want to write about and all the social issues or, or political issues or, or ideas that you want to deal with within the genre of a crime novel was exciting uh, and, and offered us the possibility of, of making a living and finding a readership. So I think uh, the, the, the writers have, have gone to the genre with a real sense of what's possible. And it's pushed the envelope in, in so many different directions since I first started writing. I think there's, you can write about anything, any setting, any theme now um, within the crime novel and it's still embraced within that, uh, that, that genre. And I think it's it's been quite clear in this, this last year and a half of, of lockdown and, and trauma that we've all gone through that, that there is something about the genre that really speaks to people. And it's, it's a safe place to be scared, I suppose, when the world's a very scary place. And there's a kind of comfort in whatever bad things happen, there is some sort of resolution at the end. And I think people are finding those the reasons for, for reading this in this difficult time. As Rachel said, we're coming towards towards the end of our time, but just a couple of the final questions from me. I was wondering, could you tell us a bit about how your your routine and your your research process works now? Is it right that you have a sort of set time of year, January, February, March, for writing? And then the final thing was, if you could tell us a bit about 1979 as well. Pretty much, I, I write sort of usually January, February, March into April, um, because the weather's miserable and you might as well be sitting inside the house writing. Uh, 
the rest of the time I I I do promotion stuff. Uh, I I do reading. And I, I do I do some research. And the amount of research varies from book to book. Really, to be honest, some books require very little research because I already know the things I need to know because of the experiences I've had, the people I've spoken to over the years. Um, ideally, when I'm researching, I like to talk to people who who know about it, who do it for real, rather than just consult the internet and and libraries, because that way you get a kind of uh, a much more uh, rounded approach to what you're writing about. You have a, a sense of, if you like, the anecdotage of, of what people do, which is how you make the, the book feel uh, more grounded, more authentic. Um, the, the new book, 1979, uh, is, uh, as the title suggests, set in that year. It's the first of a planned quintet of novels that goes at 10-year intervals, so 79, 89, 99, 2009 and finishing up in 2019 which was the, the last year of normal life as we knew it uh, and uh, the reason I set on, on this path was I came to the end of writing Still Life uh, in lockdown uh, last year and I didn't know how I could write a novel set against the contemporary world because everything was changing on a daily basis and I didn't feel like I had solid ground to stand on and I'd had a vague idea about writing this, this themed set of novels uh, and so I thought this is the time to do it. Uh, it'll be the same protagonist, Ali Burns, who will go through all five novels. She starts out as a young journalist in Glasgow in 1979. Uh, so again, I was able to draw on my own experiences, although she's very much not me. Much of the, 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 the background knowledge is, is, is directly from my own experience. Um, and it's, I suppose over the course of these novels, I want to explore the, the changes in the last 40-odd years, uh, sociology, so, sociologically, um, politically, technologically, in terms of our, our worldviews, gender, women's roles, Scotland. All of these things are, are there to be had, if you like. Um, and I think it's going to be really exciting. And 79 comes out in August, and uh, I hope people are going to enjoy it. Brilliant. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. Thank you, Val, for your time. Uh, it's been a wonderful interview and all the best with all your projects going forward. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was your Sick Notes interview with Val McDermott. You can follow her on Twitter at Val McDermott. She has a website, valmcdermott.com, and her latest book, 1979, is published by Little Brown. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. Thanks to our latest donors, Jenny and Bruce Tozer. Jenny and Bruce often listen to Always Take Notes on long drives. They like the tempo of the podcast, the passion of the writers and the humour and the humanity of their experiences. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. If you pledge $10 a month, you can get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show, in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Simon Scarrow, and here's a snippet. Write what you want to read. Um, Don't try and second-guess the market. Don't try and copy other writers who've been more successful. Write the book that you want to read. And have faith in your passion for the thing that you're writing about, um, that it will be successful because, you know, there's nothing that succeeds like authenticity, I think. Secondly, tell us about a time you failed in your writing career. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your main takeaway from the interview with Val McDermott? I think what really struck me was that when she made this decision that she was going to quit journalism and really pursue writing full time, that it was, um, you know, it was a brave decision. She was on this you know, established professional pathway, she's being paid well, but she also had these key people around her. So I think she was saying that she had, you know, she slightly horrified her agent by saying, I'm chucking in the day job. But then they decided that they had to get really get behind her and kind of really push it and make it work. And so I think it's something that comes up over and over again on the podcast that like, it's about, you know, what you do individually as a writer, but it's also about your relationships and the people you've got around you. 100%. Yeah. I I really like listening to her talk about her early years as a journalist and what she learned from that experience 
Um, also, I think one of the best nicknames any guest on the show has had as killer. Killer, killer. yeah. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, it was a difficult period to be a woman in journalism, particularly tabloid journalism. So um, it's great to see that she sort of reshaped that into a career that actually suits her. And I think also interesting, this has come up before as well, but the, the sort of changing acceptance of crime writing within the, the literary canon, that the, mm. both people take it a lot more seriously than they used to, but also that it has expanded as a genre to, you know, this idea that you, you can do whatever you want within crime. That's a kind of expansive, expansive genre rather than a restricting one. Yeah, definitely. What have you been up to, Simon? Um, I have been busy, actually. I've uh, been more or less, I hope, finalised this proposal for this new uh, non-fiction book that I've been working on, which has been good. And then with my magazine work, I've just been in that stage of trying to get a lot of things sort of moving forward. So these big projects, all these questions of access and how you're going to report something and you kind of chip away at stuff for ages and then suddenly... Ideally, in a, in a, the platonic ideal is that it suddenly seems like everything is sort of lined up and you'll know how it's working. So with luck, that's where I hope I feel I am now. What about you, Rachel? Um, I have just finished and it will be published by the time this uh, interview goes out. A piece about Simone de Beauvoir's new novel that was, well, not new, she wrote it quite a long time ago, but recently discovered and published. Re- rediscovered. <laughs> yes. New to our eyes, not new to hers. Um, uh, so yeah, that's uh, my most recent piece, and I'm working on a couple of other small things at the minute. But yeah, looking for my next big reporting project. Sounds very industrious. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom, and me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, please do. We're under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us via iTunes or on our website, that would also be great. Many thanks. Goodbye.